You're listening to the Metamorphosis Podcast. What's up, girlfriend? Welcome to Metamorphosis with Mackenzie, where transformation and inspiration meet empowerment. Delve into the realms of science, spirituality, and personal growth as I share tools, powerful hacks, and captivating stories from my travels and experiences all around the world. Not only am I going to have you fully entertained, but as a self-love and glow-up coach, I'm going to have you on your way to your hottest, happiest, healthiest, and most successful self before you even know it. So sit back and enjoy or pop those AirPods in and get your hot girl walk on. Let's dive into it. Hello, my beautiful, badass metamorphosis listeners. I'm incredibly excited to bring this episode to you as we head into the heat of the holiday season. I really enjoyed diving into my deep network and bringing quality conversations to the table for you, and today's episode is no exception to that. Today, we're talking with Dr. Aileen Alexander, who is a woman's health, well-being, and weight loss coach. She's also a certified nutritionist, TEDx speaker, and former general practitioner out in the UK. Join us as we talk all things health, wellness, and expose a lot of the faults in today's diet industry. Dr. Aileen's zone of genius is in helping women create sustainable, healthy, and enjoyable habits, helping them to not only lose weight and keep it off, but also increase their energy, reduce their stress, and build self-confidence. So without further ado, let's dive into it. Dr. Aileen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to dive into this with you. Me too. So Dr. Aileen, can you go ahead and just start us off with a little bit of what your path looked like in pursuing medicine and then ultimately how you ended up with your coaching business that you have today? Oof, that could be the whole podcast. I'm going to try and streamline this best I can. <laughs> So um, I went into medicine because I wanted to help people. Mm. Now, I was one of these really kind of shy, self-conscious kids that never saw myself as being a doctor. I didn't come from a professional background. So for me to even get into medical school was like a big deal. It was huge. And all I ever wanted to be was a doctor. I saw so much prestige around that title. But eventually, when I got there... I loved being a doctor, yes, but there were so many shackles. There was so much red tape around what I could and couldn't do. It was so challenging to really meet my patients' needs in such a small, short appointment time frame. So 10 minutes over here in the UK working in the NHS, which is our, our healthcare system. And then the real challenge as well of not really truly being able to treat the root cause of illness, in my viewpoint, and often prescribing medications where we could potentially be given lifestyle changes and when I say lifestyle changes I don't mean like eat less move more I mean like really helping somebody to understand well why is it challenging for them to move more like what are the barriers to change there why are they gravitating towards these highly palatable foods or why are they over consuming and you know really understanding the psychology behind that because I would see two patients that would have pre-diabetes or they would have a blood sugar test that was out with the normal range, but not quite within the diabetic range. Mm -hmm. One patient would go on and develop diabetes and the other patient would do everything in their power to reverse that. And then I got really interested as to, okay, well, how can we make people more like that 
instead of just succumbing to the illness and prescribing medication. So this all happened by accident, pure accident. It's It's a complete fluke. I used to see people like me who did audacious things like leaving their careers and setting up their own businesses and thinking, oh, wow, how could somebody do that? And now I am that person. And I appreciate that. Until last year when I did my TEDx talk, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm that person now. So anyway, um, it was really a journey that I was personally on. So 10 years ago, back in 2013, I had graduated medical school. I still wasn't very confident. I struggled a lot with my mental health and had taken medication in the past to manage depression, to manage anxiety. And one of the things I did to better care for myself was hire a personal trainer because mm-hmm. I thought, right, if I go to the gym and I tone up, I'm going to feel more confident And then ended up in this restrictive cycle of eating the foods that my PT had planned for me and getting my body fat measured and then competing with the scales. So although I'd never been overweight, I ended up with all the symptoms that people have when they're stuck on a rigid diet. Mm. And then had what I would now refer to as a binge eating disorder, which was all induced by stress and exhaustion. So then the table started turning. I started coaching people on the side. And then three years on from that, I left the NHS completely. And I've been doing this now for seven years in total, but full time for four. Sorry, that was really long winded. No, that was that was amazing. I always like to ask people their origin story because a lot of what makes us so good at what we do is our journey in getting to that point. And I can relate on so many levels. I also was pursuing medicine and wanted to be a doctor and saw the prestige and saw the way that I could help people and interact with individuals. And as I got further along, I noticed a lot of the same things where it was not so much about finding holistic solutions. It was about prescribing and getting somebody a pill or a really simple solution for them to just consume. And then boom, that was your new life. That is the way that it is. Your diagnosis becomes part of your identity. And we work to treat that. And that wasn't something that really aligned with me. And it feels it feels like the medical industry as a whole not only restricts the patients and what they're capable of receiving as far as care, but it also doesn't always promote the well-being of the physicians involved as well. And I know those shackles that you are talking about, that is not a job that, you know, allows you to enjoy some of the leisures and flexibilities that are available in life. And I'm sure, you know, that has been a very rewarding side of your job and what you do now. So when we're talking about the dieting industry, what are some of the really common pitfalls and challenges that women face because it is such a restrictive environment? Such a good question. And I did a whole TEDx talk on this. (laughs) I watched it the other day. It was so good. So, I mean, the biggest pitfall in the diet industry is that we're lured into this diet that we think that we can then stick to in order to create X result, when actually I believe the diet isn't always fit for purpose. So they say five to 20% of diets work. That's really, really, really low percentage, which means a person regains weight they lost and sometimes more within three years. And that's like the scientific framework for it. Mm -hmm. But the real challenge with these diets is they are so challenging to stick to. 
they feel good for one week, two weeks, the numbers coming down on the scales, which is our affirmation. Now, scale weight's like a whole other ballgame. We'll do another podcast on that. <laughs> but Because um, we have to remember it's total body mass. It's not fat loss. Mm. But it is so challenging to follow a traditional diet, but also live life and enjoy life. And I think what often happens is we end up labeling foods as good and labeling foods as bad. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell our subconscious mind? It tells us we're being bad. Then we feel guilty because we've had a chocolate bar when actually, in fact, it was just a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. So I often think that the way that we're dieting and the traditional dieting approach is creating eating disorders. Yeah. It's creating eating disorders. It's creating orthorexia, where we um, really kind of illuminate, quote unquote, healthy foods. And we think that anything processed is, is bad and, and terrible. Now, I'm not going to stand here and advocate ultra processed foods but I do believe all foods have a role in the diet because remember we're balancing nutrition with overall emotional well-being and social well-being so if you're going to Thanksgiving because I know you guys have Thanksgiving we don't have that in the UK but I know this has just recently happened as we're recording this yeah and somebody produces this beautiful delicious chocolate cake you can't have it because it doesn't fit your diet then you're either not going to have any and have that fear of missing out and you don't feel that togetherness. Wow. Or you end up having way more than you plan to and then you feel awful about it. Mm-hmm. Where does that pressure even come from for women? I guess that comes from so many different places. It comes from our culture, it comes from societal norms and, and expectations placed on women. It comes back from childhood and, and how we're brought up. Now, I'm lucky I didn't come from a family where my mom was constantly dying, dieting. In fact, I don't think my mom had ever been on a diet. Mm-hmm. But then I speak to other ladies whose mums were always on a diet and their mums were always on a diet and it gets passed on and passed on and passed on. So it becomes their normal. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's so, so, so challenging, but it's such a, an important thing. I think you bring up where, you know, our external appearance becomes so much of our worth part of the healing part of the healing journey. Cause you know, yes, I am a doctor, but it's still a healing journey. There's still this fluffiness to it. There has to be comes uh-huh. from learning to love ourselves independent of how we look, whether our hair is washed, what we weigh, et cetera, et cetera. Like it has to be multifaceted because I believe, or I see that so many women think that they're going to feel worthy when they lose the weight, but then they lose the weight and still don't feel worthy. A hundred times. Yes. And I also was somebody who never really grew up seeing dieting and whatnot. I've been fortunate to be about the exact same size I was when I was in seventh, eighth grade. So the way that my body and my metabolism works is just different. And a lot of this, correct me if I'm wrong, comes down to genetics as well. So for anybody who has had early on exposure to these things or grew up with that, do you have any advice for them or any sort of mantra or reframe that they can use just to start questioning that current reality that became so normal for them? I think for so many women, this, well, this is what I say to them. I say that this gets to stop with you. This Mm. generational dying trauma, you get to stop it. You have a choice. Like we can be the paradigm shift. And that's what we need to create a paradigm shift. We have to step away from that old way. And we have to be able to see that 
but it's only working five to 20% of the times. That shocks me, first of all. That's like a crazy statistic. But we also need to consider who are those five to 20% and how healthy are those five to 20%? Yes, they've kept the weight off, but are they the ones that are taking Tupperware tubs to Thanksgiving dinner? Are they the ones that don't go to Thanksgiving dinner? Are they the ones that purge and make themselves sick after a binge? We don't know the impact of trying to keep that weight off. Mm -hmm. You know, calorie deficit creates weight loss. And so many different things create a calorie deficit from calorie counting to macro counting to keto to fasting. You know, you, you get to choose your vehicle. But my belief, and this is just my belief in my experience, is that none of those vehicles are fit for purpose. Because wow. while they may get you to the destination, it's very unlikely you're going to stay there for what, five to 20% of the time. Yeah. And then what's the harm in using that process where there is a more intuitive, mindful, holistic, nurturing, nourishing, compassionate way to get there? But that's scary for people. In my TEDx talk, I said when I had spoken to one of my clients about mindful eating, she said to me, it's like asking me to trust a cheating boyfriend. Like it was so terrifying for her. My jaw literally just dropped. That, that is terrifying. That's what makes your work so important is again, just the education of what's, what's actually going on. What, what does it mean to be intuitive in your eating and to be very present in that process? What does that look like? Mm. I think a lot of people don't know where to start. So would shut it down because, you know, method A works, the calorie counting works, it's just that they don't have enough willpower and therefore can't stick to it. Of yeah. course, I'm paraphrasing there, but, you know, this is what people say to me. And I believe it's not a willpower issue. It's not a determination issue. It's not that you don't have it in you. It's that the, the diet wasn't fit for purpose. The vehicle wasn't fit for purpose. Right. So when we talk about being more intuitive or being more mindful with food, the ultimate outcome would be knowing our hunger and satiety signals. So knowing when we're truly hungry and when we're truly full and being able to know and eyeball portion sizes rather than um, weighing food or, or counting calories, but also having an understanding of nutrition. So knowing, right, where's my protein on that plate? Where's my carbs? Where's my fat? Mm. Um, taking all of those boxes or when somebody's out for, for a meal, I don't know what it's like in the US, but certainly here, it's the same portion size independent of you being an 80-year-old woman or a 26-year-old rugby player. It's our portion of food. Yeah. Why are we obliged to finish it? Well, there's social norms and there's the politeness and the people pleasing, like all of these different behaviors that we have that we need to look at and address. So when we eat out, being able to put the knife and fork down and really check in like am I full but doing that habitually without consciously thinking about it yeah yeah and afraid to leave food on the plate when you know we were all taught as kids to clear our plates it's a clean plate club as I refer to it so when we eat mindfully we don't eat to the point where we're over full we don't feel gassy or bloated or end up constipated or harming our guts because food tastes good because the question would be well food tastes good food also makes us feel good how else can you meet that need we often eat because we're upset or stressed or frustrated or really really happy or really sad and food has become a big 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 part of how we manage emotions whether 
people are consciously aware of it or not and, and some aren't and that's not because they're not educated it's just that you know they've not heard this podcast yet they've not met me they've not seen these things yeah so I'm going off on a tangent here but when I do food diaries with clients I always 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 ask them what were your stress levels like that day how did you sleep what were your working hours and what were your emotions before and after eating and then we start to see the patterns so the other part of mindful or intuitive eating and and they're not actually the same thing I'll explain that in a little minute but the other part of this is still being able to enjoy the chocolate bar or the candy bar I think you guys call it yeah Um, still being able to have that in a mindful way because you're truly genuinely enjoying it without guilt yeah which that's how you want to have it anyways right if you're sitting here and you're having a treat that you should be enjoying but you're sitting there guilting yourself or getting upset or thinking about what this is going to do to you negatively you're no longer having power first of all you've given all your power to this candy bar or whatever it is you're consuming but you're also then demonizing something that's supposed to be enjoyable. It's just so sad to think that people can get so wrapped up in something so small. But at the end of the day, if that is where you're tying all of your worth, all of your identity, like you were saying before, it makes complete sense that people are going to have those feelings. One thing that I wanted to ask you, and this goes back to a piece of content that I think I saw you post. I don't remember if it was a reel or your story, but you were talking about the difference between hunger and cravings. So can you dive into that a little bit just so that anybody listening can really start to differentiate and have that moment of thought before they go to consume something? Mm, Yeah. And it's about awareness. It's about increasing our self-awareness so it doesn't become this methodical, oh, I can have this because it's X amount of calories and I've got X amount or Y amount of calories left. But really, truly understanding, well, am I hungry? So the the trick I get people to, to do is ask themselves, do I want an apple right now? And if the answer is like, absolutely not, Dr. Aileen, you're ridiculous. I can't believe you would offend me by asking, do I want an apple just now? Then we know it's a craving because we don't want apples when we're craving. We want chocolate. We want ice cream. We want these highly palatable, often ultra processed foods that are easy to eat. Because think about the texture of chocolate versus ice cream versus an apple whole different eating experience but if the answer is yes I want an apple then you are hungry and we should go for the apple or the berries or some some hummus or you know peppers or carrot sticks or or one of those things there that's more nourishing nutrient value in that is going to make you feel full Mm -hmm. it's also going to add nutrients to your body remember that Food is the only thing that we interact with that literally becomes part of us. All of our cells are made from the food we eat. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. And it's interesting because as women, we also have hormonal things happening that can also impact that. How can we satisfy those cravings while still not overindulging? So in the moment where people have a craving... The answer isn't to absolutely not have the chocolate, which you would think is the default. You know, right. Most people will use what I refer to as superficial distraction techniques because that's what diets teach. And when I say that, I mean things like go for a walk, brush your teeth, have a glass of water. Mm-hmm. Often that isn't going to cut it. 
often we need to unmoor about, well, why is the craving there? So two things, the two C's, my two friends, I bring these to the coaching calls all the time. The ladies <laughs> are like, I roll. <laughs> and it's curiosity and compassion. Okay. So curiosity is really understanding, okay, what is driving this? Am I sad? Am I stressed? Have I had a bad day? Like, is there an emotional drive? Or like you quite rightly said, is there, is there a hormonal drive? So we get mm. curious, we understand. And then we're compassionate. Because if that always happens for you, then that's going to be part of your cycle. And instead of beating yourself up saying, no, I can't have the chocolate bar, I must have willpower because I'm on a diet. Mm-hmm. Is that going to help us? Probably not. Maybe for the first like 30 minutes, then you'll have like five chocolate bars. You're like, why did I do that? I'm exactly. <laughs> but this does genuinely happen to women. So if you were a client of mine, I would help you look at a way to factor chocolate in. But also understanding that chocolate isn't, there isn't just a hormonal part of this. There's a self-care need here. Mm. And often I think chocolate becomes part of self-care or me time as people often refer to it because your concept can be hard to get your head around. And we need to look at, right, well, how else can you nourish yourself? How else can you really care for you? Like, what do you need? Are you a bit more tired than normal? Do you need an early night? Do you need to phone your best friend? Do you need to go and have a bubble bath? And if those practices feel a bit alien concepts or scary, then we really need to have a conversation (laughs) about how are we caring for ourselves? Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's actually really interesting too, because when you think about this, I'm thinking about from a brain standpoint, let's say it's coming more towards the evening and you are getting more tired that's when people in your brain is craving more energy. So you're going to rely or crave more so those carbohydrates or the sugars because your brain and your body is trying to supplement for the decrease in energy. So it makes sense where we need to sit back and we need to be curious, but then we also need to understand, okay, what biologically is happening? Is it my hormones? Is it my brain? Is it me being tired, exhausted? I think that that's so beyond what the average person thinks on a day-to-day basis when it comes to their food, but you made a great point. Our food quite literally becomes part of us. It is part of our fuel. It is part of our cells. It is part of our bodies. And when you think about how you are what you eat and you truly are, it does almost put in this new opportunity to say, okay, what am I available for? And who is it that I want to be? It's okay to have these treats and things like that. But there are little substitutes that you can make. And I guess one that I can share as an example is when I know that I have my period coming up and I am starting to crave chocolate, instead of getting a whole bag of Lindor truffles or something like that, I now have become so obsessed with the cocoa covered almonds. So yeah, is there the flavor of the chocolate and like the sweetness? Sure. But overall, what I'm consuming is the almond itself. And so you're smiling. So I'm like, all right, that's that's a good, that's an approval right there. Um, <laughs> but also too, so when it comes down to it, grocery shopping is also part of the process because it's not just eating, but it's also what we have available to us. For the individuals who want to have the chocolate available, but don't necessarily have that self-control, how can we talk about that? How can we address that? Because I know I, for example, had a client and she was somebody who grew up and 
I don't know if I want to say like was was kind of experiencing like a poverty lifestyle, but it was kind of a hit or miss on whether or not she had food in her house growing up. So now that she's an, a full adult, very successful individual, she doesn't have that type of issue anymore. However, the scarcity still lies in that. And so when she does bring home a sweet snack or a treat of some sort, she tends to eat all of it right away instead of spacing it out like she had intended to because it's there and there's that scarcity. And if I don't eat it right now, it might not be available. How can we begin to wrap our minds around that and start to create more self-control in an environment that might feel really, really intense around these treats? Thank you. So I see a lot of this and I see a lot of all or nothing mentality and mm-hmm. um, you know switch off like that's just how it is so curiosity and compassion again well you've already told me when this woman was growing up that food wasn't always available so doesn't it make perfect sense that when food is available she doesn't know if it's going to disappear again like logical brain knows right but if we spoke about inner child work, which I think gets to be part of it here, and some people listening may or may not be familiar with inner child work, but with this lady, I would be curious as to, could we use some of that here to go back and heal the former version of her mm-hmm. so that she can really fully let go of that? Because there is a mental slash emotional part of this. And then there's a really practical part. So that's the mental emotional bit that I wanted to talk to, but also being so compassionate towards herself because she didn't create that. She didn't choose to do that. Although mm. maybe saying, oh, I self-sabotage or I've ruined it or maybe some other swear- sweary words in there as well that I hear sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to swear in here, but I think- You can does. do whatever you like here. <laughs> so she maybe thought she fucked up, right? Right, right. Or she may be feeling this way. So we really need to help her be compassionate towards herself because she she hasn't created this. And if we think about the dieting process, which is overall restrictive, both consciously and unconsciously, doesn't it make perfect sense that that would then reinforce the scarcity? Yeah. But from a practical perspective, there is a gentleman called Professor Brian Wonsink. Now he's US based, he's an American and he is a, he's got a PhD in human consumer behavior. Okay. I have to say that slowly. So I get the right way around, which means why do we eat? Like, why do we do what we do? And he's written this book called Slim by Design. It's a really, really great book. And it talks about everything from like our purchasing behavior to how restaurants are laid out, to how menus are laid out. And he did a study looking at foods in an office And some of the foods were laid in a see-through jar and they were laid on top of the desk. Some were in an opaque jar on top of the desk and some were in an opaque jar inside a drawer. So you can tell straight away which one was emptied first. So when this comes to women in the household, what I would encourage people to do is to put these foods into opaque tins, jars, tubs, whatever, and put them into a cupboard you don't often use. Right. Then you need to think, right, I want that food. I need to go and get the food. I take it out the cupboard. I'm opening up. Do I really want the food? And then you interrupt the pattern. If you become used to where that food is and move it, I've had clients that move it every week until we desensitize them and then it disappears completely. I've worked with so many people that can't keep foods in the house 
and they'll go to what we call the petrol pumps or you'll call it the gas station yeah and they'll literally eat chocolate and they'll hide the wrappers in their glove compartments because they don't want their husbands to know my goal for them is to learn how to keep chocolate in the house it's worse for women that have young kids it's really really challenging for sure so just practically changing that just creates that pattern interrupt and then one more thing I want to say on that you mentioned treats earlier yeah I want to offer you an upgrade on that word or I'm so in so I always say to people like these aren't treats they're not bad foods they're not guilt foods they're not fattening foods they're non-optimal foods which means they're not nutritionally optimal but they're still part of the diet I love that that just made it insignificant You know what I mean? Like when we put too much, it's kind of like idolizing a person. Like I'm, I'm imagining idolizing this chocolate because it's going to make me feel better. It's going to help me relax. It's going to make me, you know, it's going to excite my palate and bring something new to the table and make me feel like I'm indulging. And if I were to just look at this instead of it being a treat, it's just a food that is simply not going to really add much to my nutritional diet. That takes the power away. It again gives me more of an educated opinion and educated perspective as to whether or not I really want to consume it. It's not great for you, but it's a downgrade for the food because it's not optimal. Well, and that's the way it should be. That's the way that it should be. I work with women and a lot of the times what it is we desire, we put on a pedestal. Same thing, you know, if I want to lose 50 pounds, I've put that 50 pound lighter version of me up on a pedestal. It's like a glorified food. If I want to glorify this, now I've also put that up on a pedestal. And anytime we see something that we can't technically have, it makes us kind of want it more. We see this in dating. We see this in all sorts of things, but it also is incredibly relevant to food. And that goes back to the same psychology. So it really is about normalizing and creating a new dialogue like you were saying as to continuing to give yourself the power and knowing where you're going but also kind of relieving some of that pressure so when you're working with your clients how do you help these women take back more of their power understanding their goal and where they want to go but not having it be the highest possible accolade that they can work towards or keeping that version of them off of the pedestal Mm, yeah so people come to me not just for weight loss they come to me for health and weight loss or longevity and weight loss or energy and weight loss or it's it's never just weight loss which is I think one of the keys here so they've already started to take weight loss off the pedestal a little bit and they've started to realize that it's not it's not going to be the pursuit of losing weight at the cost and the expense of everything else Mm -hmm know so that becomes part of it but it naturally happens as the journey starts to progress so it isn't that they idealize this lighter version of themselves but they start to shift their identity to become the person who has those habits and behaviors and I'm going to frame that in a slightly different way because I, I don't think I've explained that very well so I talk about how we want to have healthy behaviors and then our Behaviors ultimately become habits, which means we do them regularly without Mm. thought or effort. But you said today in this podcast already, life happens or there's a holiday season. Now, that is like two of the biggest reasons why diets don't work, because they get derailed. 
So unless we build our identity around who we want to be, then they're going to disappear. Like we'll go away on vacation or holiday, depending if you're in the UK or the US when you're mm-hmm. listening to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, go, we'll go away a trip and then we'll come back and struggle to get back into the healthy habits, which means we're forcing ourselves to have the healthy habits rather than them being part of us. And then yeah. that's where we can maybe talk a little bit about masculine and feminine energies or go state and flow state. Because if you're pushing and forcing yourself into X, Y, Z protocol, rather than it intuitively being something you actually want to do, like it's two different things. And that's a real softer skills thing to coach out of somebody and support them in. But how we do one thing is how we do everything. I often see that these are the ways that women show up in, in workplace. Mm. So it doesn't just change the diet or the whole way they live their life. It changes how they show up in relationships. It changes how they show up in the workplace. It helps them to cultivate self-compassion, which is a phrase that they think is so icky, like self-love, self-compassion. They're like, Aileen, please stop talking about it. It's so uncomfortable. (laughs) But I think ultimately that's the root of all of this Mm -hmm. because we self-sabotage when we don't really truly value or love or care for ourselves so we're constantly like peeling back these layers of the onion and it sounds like a lot and it is a lot but when you're guided through it it makes perfect sense and the journey in itself becomes enjoyable but you can then see why the outsider just wants to count calories can't you yeah I answered your question oh that was perfect that was perfect and I really love what you said about self-compassion being the core of it all because when you do value yourself you don't want to overeat and feel like shit afterwards you don't want to sneak in an extra three chocolates that you know you didn't actually want to have your brain is just telling you like I need this kind of thing and so when you're working with clients what are some of the main or really common tools and tricks that you use to help bring that self-compassion to the forefront and have them make that perspective shift so firstly they need to identify it's a self-compassion challenge Mm. I can't tell them that or it's never gonna land some people we never quite get there but we're still able to change the habits and the behaviors but for the people that we're able to get there then we we work on building the self-compassion as you say so I'm just going to pull up the definition of self-compassion, actually, because this is where I start with everyone. And it's too big for me to have memorized. (laughs) So self-compassion was defined by Kristen Neff back in 2003. So not a million years ago. This is all quite new stuff, really. Mm -hmm. It's having three interrelated components that are exhibited during times of pain and failure. Dieting is pain and failure, isn't it? But also remember how we do one thing, how we do everything. So it translates... And there's three uh, concepts. So first one, being kind and understanding towards oneself rather than being Mm self-critical. Fail at a diet, are we kind and understanding? No. How do we learn to be? That's where we need to go. Mm -hmm. The second one, seeing one's fallibility as part of the larger human condition and experience rather than isolating but that's really accepting our humanness, knowing that we're going to mess up. You're going to eat another chocolate bar that you didn't plan to eat. That is okay. Mm-hmm. We get to just pick it up where we left the next day. How many calories are in a chocolate bar? 200, 250? 
depending if they're American or, or UK ones, maybe. And then the last part, holding one's painful thoughts and feelings in mindful awareness rather than avoiding them or over-identifying with them. And then again and again, I see women that push them. They don't want to open up the box. It's hurtful. It's scary. It's, it's uncomfortable. And really... That's where we get to go. And then the first exercise I give them, which is really tough, is I get them to tell me every day three things they're proud of in themselves. Oh, I love that. So it might be something like, I don't know, I'm trying to think what one of my clients had said to me today. It might be something like I went for a walk at lunchtime. Or it might be something along the lines of, um, I held my boundary with my boss at work in, in the meeting, or it might be along the lines of, you know, I went to bed when I planned to. It doesn't have to be health well-being related. It could be about their family or whatever else, but just really getting them in, like, like teasing them into, that's not even the right word, tiptoeing into this concept of valuing and celebrating themselves because as women, that is an alien concept. I know I struggled so much with that. It's okay for men, but as a woman, you've got to like, you know, stay humble and, and be pretty, but not too pretty and, and be nice, but not, you know, a pushover. And mm -hmm. yeah, you're nodding. You tell me, where are you at with that? I, I just, I see so many similarities in what we do. And it it's just crazy because what I do is so different, yet all boils down to the exact same construct and the exact same root causes of really needing to love yourself and be compassionate towards your actions and your missteps and understanding that we are human and that we're not meant to be perfect and there really is no such thing as perfect but when you do uphold your boundaries and prioritize yourself and value yourself even in something that seems so disconnected from what it is you're focused on that energy translates. I love the exercise you have them do because we often don't congratulate ourselves. And you and I have had conversations about this too, as being women, you know, am I being conceited? Am I being selfish? Am I loving myself too openly? Are people going to criticize me or judge me because of how I'm acting or how I view myself or how I talk about myself or celebrate myself? And I think that the only people that really do that are the people who don't have it in themselves first. As women, I think that that's what makes these conversations so important because we truly can be the ones who change the paradigm and change what the world looks like in the future. And we can also be women who naturally come together to support one another. And when we come together to support one another, that's a whole collective that now has goals of prioritizing ourselves and really loving on ourselves. And that to me creates the most expansive opportunity for your highest self to come in. What advice do you have for women who maybe are really struggling to even reflect and see the positive things? Because naturally our brain does look for the negative things. We're always trying to problem solve. We're always trying to look out for things that are potentially dangerous. How can we lean into more of that celebratory energy? Mm, so this is where I get the best friend tool involved okay. and not everybody has a best friend so this can be tricky for some ladies but let's use let's just say that you do have a best friend and we'll use that example mm -hmm. so we often don't speak to ourselves or we really speak to ourselves as well as other people would 
Yeah. So what I would invite somebody to do is, well, what would your best friend say in this situation? What advice would she give you? How does that make you feel? And often there's an undercurrent of, of needing to be validated or or seeking validation. And yeah. again, that depends on love language. And I know you and I have spoken about love language before, but if words of affirmation is in there at all, right? how can we access that? And how can you give yourself more of that? And for me, on my personal healing journey, that has been monumental. I'm a step parent as well, which I I haven't shared as part of this podcast, just because it didn't come into conversation. And learning to like, see my own needs. And that has been huge, because I don't know anybody else who is in the same scenario as I am when it comes to step parenting, which is such a gift. And it's such a challenge in equal measures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've experienced that firsthand. I was a bonus mom for a couple of years and it is, it is crazy. You really have to learn to prioritize yourself. And again, I think it all comes down to valuing yourself. When you see yourself as worthy of having X, Y, Z, you don't hesitate to ask for those things or to stand up for yourself and commit to what it is you need and what, you know, is important to you. So I think this is the perfect segue, but holidays and lifestyle and family and social gatherings are really important to our existence as human beings. And it can be incredibly difficult to prioritize other goals or commitments during those times because it is just different. Life happens, it gets hectic. Now there are other people involved and whatnot. So what advice do you have for women going into the holidays? How can we really support women in this time to also empower themselves and stick to those goals that they have. Mm, Yeah. And I think it's, you're right. It's panic season for so, so many ladies. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the reasons I will not be taking two weeks off over Christmas, we'll be closed in public holidays, but we're doing coaching calls in between. We actively chose to take time off before Mm -hmm. so that we're available because it's such a big thing. So like I want to bring to the table the definition of health because I think very few people know what the definition of health is and I googled this as a doctor (laughs) which was part of my TEDx talk and then I took it out because it was going to end up not too long but the health was defined in 1948 by the World Health Organization the WHO which we've all heard of since COVID times and there's three parts to it there's social there's emotional and there's physical And most of us miss out the social part. We think health is physical. We think health is mental health. We forget about social health. One of the problems with the traditional dieting approach is it doesn't fulfill the social box. Mm -hmm. We feel really nervous about going to social occasions or we might feel anxious or then it becomes all or nothing. I'll eat before I go or I'll try and limit myself to this. And then more often than not, we end up over consuming because we've created so much rules and rigidity because that's how traditional diets work. They work on rules and rigidity. They're not based on intuition and mindfulness. So my advice would be if you're on a traditional diet, if you're on like keto or calorie counting or something like that, and we need to get you off of it. Sort of a business, quit that shit today. (laughs) Absolutely. But just being kind to yourself. So people will say, oh, well, 
you know, I'm going to have Christmas and then I'll get back on it. But be really gentle with yourself and really ask yourself if my diet is meaning that I'm needing to switch it off to then switch it back on. You know, is that really healthy? Is it really sustainable? Am I enjoying this? Is there another way? What could I do differently? Do I need to listen to this podcast five times in order to grasp some of the concepts? Because we've shared so much goodies in this podcast. Yeah. But I don't think anybody should be having to follow rules on Christmas Day and eating out of Tupperware or, you know, counting their calories on a phone app or whatever else. But what we should be doing is eating intuitively and knowing how to stop when we're full and understanding if we do overeat, well, why are we doing that? Curiosity and compassion, Mm -hmm. but ultimately forgiveness as well, because every time we have an eating occasion, it's just practicing. You know, and when we get data and we get feedback and then we look at it and then we understand it and we're curious and we're compassionate and then we build and we learn and we evolve because we don't become perfect in these things overnight. It took me years to overcome the stress eating, the all of those things that happened way back when to get to the place where I'm at now. Like, I think sometimes people maybe look at me or listen to me and think, oh, she's got it all sorted and these things are the exception rather than the rule the last time I would say the stress eating crept back in would have been a year ago when I did my TEDx talk ironically because it was one of the most stressful things I'd ever done and I thought isn't this so interesting we're back here again yeah and the key there was then managing the stress but I had the self-compassion to know how to do that and to and give my awareness yeah in the space and the time and the grace and all the tools but that took time, that took coaching, it took books, it took diplomas, it took, you know, such of my time and energy and expense to learn how to do those things. Yeah, that's, that's why I see coaching as so beautiful. And that's why I value you and your work so much, because you took all of the time, you took all of the courses, you've read all of the books, so that now people who hear your message and want to work with you, they get all of that wrapped up, simplified, strung into a tight package and they're just gifted it within a shorter amount of time but it doesn't make it simple I definitely don't ever want to take that away from somebody it is not easy to tackle some of our biggest hurdles and our biggest tests through life and I think that you highlighted a really beautiful point and this is something that I've talked about with my clients as well is that no matter how far you are in your journey things will continue to come up and test you. And you never grow out of that stage ever. I think that when you first get into these things, you're like, all right, I just got to do X, Y, Z, and then I'm healed and I'm good. And it's never going to happen again. Life is just like the golden path and the golden archways, like you're good to go. And that's not true. Essentially, what we're doing is we're accumulating these tools and these skills and the awareness because these things will continue to come. And that's part of the process. It's a lifelong journey. It's not just a short snippet of steps, which is why in the first place, it makes sense that diets just don't work in the long run anyways. It's Mm. meant to be holistic. It's meant to be a continuous process that we go through. Mm-hmm. oh yeah you're so right I love that yeah the circumstances continue to show up but we just get better at navigating them seeing them predicting them and yeah. therefore creating contingency plans without thought or effort like it's just part of how I live these days it's like when my stepson goes on his ice hockey trips if he's getting the bus because he plays for an ice hockey team he's 14 everybody goes to McDonald's and gets like burgers and chips 
And yeah. he goes to the Marks and Spencers and gets this super nutty whole food and so a packet of chicken. Absolutely rip him. And he doesn't care because he knows how his body feels. And I never told him that. I've never really spoken to them about nutrition, but I've always fed them the same foods as us. Mm. And it's just so interesting how that's just naturally translated. Yeah. So how does that then correlate as well with the social aspect? So for him, he's a 14-year-old kid. So he doesn't really care. He thinks he's cool. He's like, oh, I'm bilking. I've been to the gym. But yeah, I think it's really, really as well, because then if it was you or I and everyone was going to get chips or and burgers or whatever else, then we would feel obliged. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't hear pressure in that somebody is shoving a burger down your face. We may on some level feel that we're not being polite if we don't have it, even if we consciously don't want it. Yeah. We want to be part of the tribe. We want to be part of the crowd. And I say we, I probably less likely to happen to you or I, but it may happen to the next person. And then if that's the one stop that the bus does and there's nowhere else, there's no other options, then what do you do? Yeah, exactly. I have this little snack bag. It's this tiny little cool bag that I bought years ago when the kids were little and they took packed lunches and it's got llamas all over it. I quite often post the llama bag on my Instagram story. Where's llama (laughs) bag at today? And I've literally taken this on planes, like everywhere. And I'll put things like nuts or yogurt or berries or bananas or things like that in it, because these are foods that are not easily accessible. Go to a coffee shop, there's lots of cakes, but there's rarely fruits or things like that available. So what, what do you do if you're genuinely hungry and you genuinely need to eat? Well, you need to carry a banana in your Louis Vuitton. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. But People are getting this fear of missing out and they're getting the food envy and what should they have and how many calories and I'm trying to be good. And it becomes this huge thing that they can't focus on the social enjoyment. And so many of our social meets these days revolve around food, whereas eating out used to be a luxury on a birthday or an anniversary or a special holiday. It's now just become how we catch up with friends and the calories come as a byproduct. So thinking of other ways as well to socialize it doesn't have to revolve around food and the food isn't the important or the most important part of that me it's I would hope the person that you're with and the experience and yeah. the food and the, like food is pleasurable and I still eat for pleasure and I you know if I got the opportunity to go to a nine course menu with wine pair and I'd be the first one to sign up absolutely but we need to remember as well to zoom out holistically and think well that's probably going to be one night out of 365 days in the year true mm-hmm. there's so yes. much to it yeah no I believe it I believe it so the last thing that I want to ask you about is kind of along the lines of what I see a lot of how do I how do I refer to them I'm thinking of companies like Herbalife or Isogenics or things like that. (laughs) Your eyeballs just got huge. You probably know where I'm going with this. What kind of message or lifestyle is being portrayed or promoted through these things? And what's your opinion on on all that? Yeah. So my opinion is, sadly, I don't agree with any of it at all because it's not a whole food focused approach. It's a supplemental approach. Mm -hmm. I think that supplements are still needed, for example, vitamin D here in Scotland over winter time, but also yeah. if you look at the clinical guidelines, 
kids uh, who are younger than four and adults over the age of 65, which I last checked when I was practicing as a GP. So that may, may have changed. Don't take that as medical advice. Omega-3s for people who don't eat oily fish. Sometimes protein powders for people who really struggle to get protein in or maybe they're um, vegan or vegetarian. So I think sometimes supplements are needed and we shouldn't like, you know, poo-poo them. And food isn't medicine. Like we still need medications. Yeah. Um, but things like Herbalife or Huel or all these alternatives, we have to remember that we don't live in laboratories. Like life isn't just about the calories. Like food, there's so many different parts to food, like the textures and the smells and the temperature and the flavor and which is mindful eating, like really enjoying that eating experience and allowing it to be pleasurable because food is still pleasure. Yeah. Despite all the things we still said, which you know, maybe people are starting to get confused now because I'm like, you know, talking about a whole different angle of things. But it upsets me that these places exist and it upsets me that the ethics of some of these companies, but the same as the ethics of ultra processed food companies because the marketing that goes along with it, wow. you know, where they're carefully positioned in supermarkets and how there's like 20 different kinds of Smarties. <laughs> Like, you know, you even get smarty cakes, like smarty ice cream, smarty this, smarty, or, you know, Reese's. There's so many different options, but yet we only have a few, few apples. Yeah. It's just crazy um, that these things exist in the world that we're in and they have huge marketing budgets. Huge marketing wow. budgets, huge influence. And I think the biggest thing that really turns me off to those those companies and the industries is the fact that anybody who joins those companies or those industries they can have two shakes a day call that their diet and then they're going to go and coach somebody else to do that as well that's where i have the biggest issue is you've got individuals who don't know the slightest thing about nutrition telling you how you should eat how you should live and what you should be doing absolutely and this is the real struggle in the industry that i'm in because it's not regulated like I'm a I'm a yeah. doctor but I'm in the NHS space I'm not even really fully in the healthcare space although this is still a subset of medicine called lifestyle medicine which is an emerging speciality you know, the general population don't know what a lifestyle medicine physician is neither do most doctors you know so it becomes really challenging for people to know well where do I go who do I speak to can this person help me I've been trying to lose weight for 20 30 years how do I know that this is going to work and yeah questions wow yeah and it is marketing which circles back to the conversation we had about consumer psychology and it is it is really just learning to know yourself, discerning through the marketing messages, turning on your brain a little longer just to really question certain things and, you know, making holistic decisions that support your goals, but also support you in the moment. And that again is what I really love so much about you and your job and your message and the movement that you're making around the world. And the final question that I want to ask you is any major closing piece of advice that you can offer women who are maybe not happy with the reflection they see in the mirror and looking to make those next steps what is a piece of advice that you would give them oh I need to think about this yeah that's okay <laughs> I think just being gentle again and compassionate with oneself so we get to write the next chapter it doesn't matter if it's chapter 
68 or if it's chapter 268 or 2068 like we still get to choose another path we still get to shift the paradigm we still get to create a new way of not just losing weight but loving ourselves creating a healthy sustainable and enjoyable lifestyle because weight loss doesn't have to be miserable no. weight loss can be fun weight loss can be enjoyable you can win at it but just being really gentle because most of the women that I speak to have been beating themselves up for years which yeah. further compounds a problem and creates a spiral and of course they're beating themselves up because they think that they're at fault that the diet industry has been feeding us all a lie yeah that was beautiful that was perfect and I want to just say the biggest thank you for your time and your message and all of the tips and tools and practices and reframes that you offered during this podcast, Dr. Aileen. The final thing that I want to just provide for our listeners is where they can find you and what you can actually offer as support or how they can work with you. Okay. So you can find me in predominantly two places. So the first one is my website, which is dralien.com. Now doctor is spelled the full word D-O-C-T-O-R because someone had dralien.com. How rude. But my website's better than theirs, so you don't need to go to that one. <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram, and it's at Dr. Aileen. So D-O-C-T-O-R, just to keep it all the same. Aileen, and then it's underscore, underscore. How can people work with you? What does that look like? Oh, good question. So I work with people in two different ways. I work with people one-to-one, and I also work with people in groups. Now, when I say group, I mean teeny tiny little groups like five to ten people per group little intimate coaching pods Mm -hmm. so that you still get that one-to-one time and attention so my program's called the nourish method or the group's called the nourish academy again because the concept here is all about learning how to nourish ourselves but what I would say to anybody who's interested there is some information on my website but the best thing to do would be to apply for uh, consultation because I don't want to waste people's time Um, I would much rather you apply for a consultation and then we can have a proper conversation and then we get the diagnosis on the conversation if I can't help with the things that are brought to the table then we can refer out I've been doing this a long time so I'm really well connected and we also have a therapist on board our team as well a mindset coach who does some of the deeper psychological interventions. So sometimes the case is signposting to her or maybe signposting to somebody else. But I would always encourage people, have a conversation. Like Mm -hmm. who knows what we might uncover or where it'll lead you. And very, very few people that I speak to are able to see that diagnosis themselves. Like it really is just a curious, compassionate chat that might just change your entire life. Wow. Boom. Right there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Aileen. I'm really excited about this podcast and about this message. And again, this is coming out right around the holiday season. So ladies who are listening to this, take in and absorb all of the messages that you heard here and and allow yourself to enjoy and be present with the people in the holidays and the season that we're in here and now. I want to send a warm happy holidays from yours truly, and I will catch you in the next episode. Bye.